explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. to the readers Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I am Friedrich Pietsche. And I'm Soren Riergarn. You can follow us as always on Twitter at the Readers K, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash the Readers Karamazov. You can send us an email at the Readers Karamazov at gmail.com. We love that fan mail. And you can sign up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Readers Karamazov. That will give you access for as little as $5 a month to some bonus pods, including one that we're going to record after this one, where we talk about movies, among other things. We always welcome your feedback, and you can send us an email. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to get some more reviews and ratings up there. You can also tell a friend about us if you think you have a friend who'd like to listen to a podcast about literature and philosophy and the good life. You can do that whenever you want to. We're back tonight talking about uh, my pick, which is Ian McEwan's 1998 novel, Amsterdam. And as always, I'm going to give you a little plot summary, and then we're going to launch into some of the things that, that we are thinking about what makes this book interesting. And I'll tell you about why I picked it in, in just a minute. So Amsterdam is the story of two old friends. Clive Lindley is a well-regarded and respected classical music composer, and his friend Vernon Halliday is the editor of a well-respected British newspaper, The Judge. They meet up one day at the funeral of a former lover of both of theirs, a woman named Molly, who had died after battling a long sort of brain disease and had um, been fighting off mental decline for, for a number of years. And in the wake of that funeral, they, they make a promise to each other, Clive and Vernon do, that they will never let each other get to that point. So if one of them starts to decline and they re- they go past the point where they can make the choice to kill themselves, the other one will do that. Meanwhile, they also get entangled with another one of Molly's former lovers, a man named Julian, who's, to, to their minds, a very unsavory right-wing politician. And over the course of the novel, uh, Vernon comes into possession of some some compromising photographs of Julian. And so he's faced with the choice of what to do with these, whether he should publish them um, or not, to take Julian to task for his hypocrisy or to kind of leave him alone, let him live his private life. Meanwhile, Clive is struggling to finish his symphony for the new millennium that he has, is writing, has been commissioned to write, and is expected to be this wonderful statement about the human condition. But he's having some struggles finishing that. He goes on a trip to the Lake District in England to finish up. He there witnesses something that he thinks might be horrendous happening um, and chooses to do nothing about it and leaves. And then both men are sort of struggling with the choices that they have made or will make. The I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler for this book um, since it's 20 years old at this point. At the end of the book, they have their choices have alienated them from each other, Clive and, and Vernon. And they both go to Amsterdam where... Of course, euthanasia is legal, even at this point in 1998. And they plot to each kill the other person, and they tell themselves, okay, this person has clearly declined mentally because they are doing this thing to me. And so they they kind of trick each other, and in the end, they both end up killing each other, and the book ends. They've both died. Meanwhile, Julian, the unsavory character, has gotten off scot-free, basically. Clive's symphony is in ruins. Nobody wants to play it because womp womp. It sound the ending sounds just like the ending of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and everybody's enraged that he just it's this like, like yeah. this mockery of music here that he's produced. So the reason that I picked this book is um, really a couple of reasons. One is that I'm interested in Ian McEwan as a novelist, partly because I don't know whether I like him as a novelist or not. <laughs> I feel that um, he's very divisive, and of course he he's best known for his novel Atonement, which was turned into a, a to a prestigious film, but. 
that's actually kind of a strange book for him in, ter- in terms of he, he that's a historical novel he usually writes more contemporary set novels and he's a novelist who's very interested in things like science and really what he part of what he struggles through is whether or not there's a place for the novel and for art in a in a, a time where we know so much through science science can explain so much even about human consciousness what role is left for the novelist when we have so much explained for us and that's kind of what he likes to dive into a lot of times he also likes to set up these kind of strange relationships between men um, these friendships that are adversarial there's one book called enduring love that's about a sort of obsessive relationship that one man has for another and they are tend to be very tightly plotted tend to be fairly short um, and and somewhat comic on the one hand, he's a very technically accomplished author. His books are very easy to read. They're very pleasing in a lot of ways. On the other hand, I'm always left feeling like, is that it? Sort of. And, and I feel that in, in different ways with Amsterdam, although I think I like it the best of his books that I've read. But he does leave me feeling like, is that it by the end? And even here, and I'm curious to know what you all think, Carl and Friedrich, about this ending. The ending feels a little flat to me in some ways. Maybe we can talk through that. But on the more positive side, because I don't want you to think like, I don't like this book, because I do. The biggest reason that I selected it is that it does a lot of thinking through what music is and what role music plays in human life and then more a little bit more broadly it does some thinking around ideas about artistic creation and genius and what that looks like to me that's the by far the more interesting strand in the book i'm less interested in the sort of journalistic ethics of vernon's decisions things like that although we can talk about that a little bit certainly you all may be more interested in that than i am but to me the really interesting stuff is about music and how it's created how it's produced and then what meaning it takes on in the world. So I thought we could think through some of those things. Um, but but first I'll toss it over to you all and you know you can tell me what you think of the book and, and maybe McEwen in general and we can go from there. Sure. I think um, I agree with you, Soren, about McEwen in general that you know he's someone who's like playing Martin from The Simpsons, uh, My Dinner with Andre arcade game. He's got a trenchant insight here, a bon mot there. And it's really great writing like you were saying, his writing on music is extremely compelling and uh, he really gets you into the, like the free and direct discourse minds of his characters in a satisfying way and talks about their motivations in ways that reveal a lot about them. But then as far as the overall structure of the book goes, it does feel really neat. And maybe there's something, meta, some sort of meta commentary we could draw out of that and think about why is there this neatness and why is it, why, there's these like schemes set in place that then, kind of unfold and and tie up perfectly at the end and even with julian he was supposed to be the next pm of the uk but then after his scandal he's he's sort of revered in some ways because they came out and took control of the narrative he and his family but it also like places an upper limit on his political life and molly's partner who was there with her to the end george george sort of like ends with a, a sort of satisfying I got the best of her and none of these other lovers did. There's sort of a weird like tontine thing going on where one person has to be left with the true Molly and as her true devoted lover or something. I, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I want to talk more about it as we get through the podcast, but he definitely has a lot of moments that are incredible, I think, as a writer. Yeah, I would agree that the gender politics of the book overall are not good. <laughs> They're the 90s gender politics in a way that aren't great, but I think with McEwen too, like there are these wonderfully prescient insights about like a future where something like Brexit might happen mm-hmm. or the future we're living in now where the Guardian has to have a long sort of dear reader, please give us some money. We're <laughs> dying out here on our non paywall. I-, I love the Guardian non paywall free readership, but that future is coming, you know, um, and he, you know, this is 1998 or something, right? Like, but at the same time, the novel isn't like drumming up the significance of that. It just kind of is there, you know, it's like, it's the difference between like a DeLillo who's trying to tell us that these things are there and how deep they run. And I think a really successful kind of 
grand novelist way. And then in these books, they're just kind of peppered in and out. And the, the, the focus is more instead on an extremely well-crafted novel, which I think for a lot of us, you know, we'd rather have the, the deeper insight, the grander vision, the extremely florid prose or something, or like wild characters, then this, I mean, McCune, he just rattles them out, right? And he's very good at making an extremely polished, um, extremely palatable book. Again, my fake review title for this this book would be A Melody for the Middle Brow. There's just so much like middle browness in this in this book and that to me I think is a little bit more almost it's like grandest picture the men versus each other like triteness and the fact that they're both in some sense artists who are trying to make something great but they know that like the best they can do is like manageably good art and there's this kind of sad um, tragedy of being of knowing what a great work looks like or being able to appreciate it but then you can't really tap into that greatness and we get you know each character kind of seeing like there are moments where they get a sense that like the muse is smiling on them and they might if in that moment they aren't stopped they can get something that's you know their best and that might be great but the chances of that are very very slim I think that's kind of the some of the deepest parts of this book. I want to return to that in a little bit, Carl, that discussion, because I'm interested in the idea that just occurred to me. Is this book a sort of meta-commentary and defense of middle-brow art? But I want to stick a pin in that and wait till we talk about art in a little bit. Because the first thing I want to ask you about, in particular, as we press on this question of McEwen's neatness, his sort of almost like a mousetrap plot in terms of the board game mousetrap, right? Is this, is in particular this ending, which is why I went ahead and spoiled it, because obviously one part of the book that's, I think, supposed to be sort of surprising, or maybe it's not supposed to be surprising, is this ending where the two men end up responsible for each other's death, um, and not in the way they originally had intended as a, as a suicide pact, but really as a double homicide. And I just want to know what you think of the ending, because to me it it, it felt too obvious it just it felt telegraphed from very early on in the book but then your comments about it make me wonder from both of you make me wonder is that the point was he sort of deliberately telegraphing it or is it just sort of like he, he didn't do a good you know is, is it a failure or is it a success on his own terms i have a i have a thought on that a sort of speculative reading of it because i to my initial reaction is sort of like well we sort of know the way they talk about Amsterdam early on in the novel. We don't, we don't know, but by the time we get to the ending, we know, is he really going to do this? We're asking, is he really going to have them both like get their Dr. Kevorkians and kill each other? Like that's such a strange, it just, it, for me, it's strange as a reader to, to come to an ending that feels like it's going to happen. And then it happens instead of to be surprised in some way. But at the same time, as I'm trying to be generous and think about it more, and he's obviously a gifted writer, so I think we should be generous with it. I think that part of what is interesting about it is that both of them have these almost comical reveries as they're dying or being put under from the champagne, the drug champagne, where they're like living out their fantasy of who they are in their minds. And Molly has returned in their in their minds and is with them now. She's like chosen them, this sort of freewheeling 60s. 70s whatever she goes through all the eras in some way this lover and they are both men who sort of live in their fantasies of themselves while being dogged by their fear that they're mediocre throughout the novel and because of that then they like erect uh, some walls around themselves in, in the way a lot of the male protagonists of the novels we've read tend to do right <laughs> they're they're shielding themselves in some way from their own self-knowledge and the person who seemingly emerges out of the novel okay is julian garmony who is also the only one whose like sexual vulnerability was exposed that he was he's a hypocrite he's a right winger and for a lot of reasons is is a terrible figure in the novel but he also is the one who's like who's like inner self is revealed in the photographs that they've taken and uh, clive defends that right he's like vernon you shouldn't expose him because this is a moment with molly when they're having a shared intimacy that's really important and then what's speculative about it, I, I guess, in my reading is that he, he also has that limit placed on him by the end of the novel and 
George is sort of the person revealed to, I don't know, have the success. And he's the person who was with her as she kind of drifted into a sort of dementia, I guess we could say, and died. And they say she died like an animal, not knowing what was happening to her, right? And he was there for all of that. And we don't get that novel. And I think McEwen's, I think he's alluding to that unwritten novel and saying like, this is a, a heroic character in some way. Who's st- the person who sticks with his dying lover and is there for her, whereas the o- these other men are living in, in fantasies to some degree. And they also, what's fascinating about that reading, Friedrich, is that the the men throughout the book repeatedly are just like bashing on George. He's such a bore. He's so stuffy. But you're right. We don't get access to the parts where he is taking care of his wife who's dying of you know dementia or whatever it is that she has. Mm-hmm. A- and so, but, but at, by the end, he's emerged as the triumphant figure. So there is that I do like that sort of layer of irony to it that these two men both in their own ways had aspired to some sort of greatness and had only achieved that mediocrity. Meanwhile, George, who doesn't seem to aspire to much of anything, comes out on top at least romantically speaking or however yeah. you want to put that. He even goes to the step of he's he's possibly going to initiate a new romance with uh, Vernon's wife right by the end. What I liked about the plot structure though i agree it's very telegraphed is it doubles back to the first part of the books look at each former lover is like trying to cancel the other or call out the other on their like moral failing that they find to be a wrong thing to call someone else out on right so it's kind of a it's kind of a layered thing where each looks at the other's attempt to like look at somebody and say they're wrong and they say that itself is wrong and then we get at the end a return to that in the sense that they both kill each other in a legal way and so the book is really interested in like these moral failings that aren't necessarily um, things that are going to send you straight to jail like is it libel or isn't it or is it like a witness to murder or um, manslaughter you know you you fail to report a crime and so the way of saying, like, you know, titling the book Amsterdam and saying, like, in Amsterdam, this is legal, it's a slight criticism of, like, what modernity has wrought or something, where it's, like, the new aspiration is to be a great somebody, and a great somebody can always be ruined by their moral failings as opposed mm-hmm. to their criminal failings. Uh, and so in Amsterdam, it's okay. It's not that that we're enlightened in Amsterdam. It's that almost like a more depraved sense of who people are is the legal norm. <laughs> and so each, though they die, you know, escapes having done anything criminal. And so it's like a weird how much failure is under the surface in each person is shown to be rather large. And this is kind of something that is really brought into the clear in Amsterdam, a place of the sort of most secularly enlightened place or something, right, in Europe. And this is like what the the last 2,000 years have gotten us in some way, right? Because the book is interested in like where has the last millennium ended, um, with what values, with what kinds of people, right? And it's not a very good social contract, obviously. And that's, I think what redeems the ending a little bit for me there's some take on the social contract that if McEwen's like going for something big I think it's in that that's an interesting take and that that helps me I think understand a little bit better why the book is called Amsterdam because it is kind of a strange title for a book where only what 20 pages of it take place in Amsterdam just at the very end and in some ways you could read it almost as like an additional telegraphing of what's coming because you know they're heading towards Amsterdam which is where they've talked about going to to um, die but I like that reading Carl as this sort of uh, Amsterdam as a sort of symbolic repository of all of these sort of dashed hopes or something which which leads me kind of really nicely into one of the other questions I wanted to ask before we start talking about art and things like that the back of my copy has a bunch of blurbs on it and one of them from New York magazine says at once far-reaching and tightly self-contained a fin de sickle phantasmagoria, which is a kind of nice connection with a movie that we talked about in a previous Watchers Karamazov pod, the Stanley Kubrick film Eyes Wide Shut, 
which is maybe a more convincing fin de sickle phantasmagoria. Ooh, but yes. I, I want to press on the, the word I want or the phrase I want to press on there is fin de sickle, right? Which for our listeners, if you don't know that term, that's a term that was first applied at the end of the 19th century. It just means the end of this, the century, right? And it's applied to a group of writers and um, other artists, a lot in France, uh, but then kind of bleeding over into England. Oscar Wilde is sort of associated with them in some mm-hmm. ways. They're dominated by a mood of anticlimax, a, a mood is sort of, you know, to, to quote the famous T.S. Eliot line, right? Things are ending not with a bang, but a whimper, right? We're kind of dying out at the end of this century, sort of a few last gasps. It's very a very resigned, um, slightly ironic uh, method of approach. And, and that, of course, the lie is quickly put to that in, at the end of the 19th century because then you end up going into World War One at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, but it kind of repeats itself in some ways in the 20th century. I'm thinking particularly of the films of Whit Stillman, which we might talk about in a future episode, things like Metropolitan, have, have to me a very findicical feel to them. There's a decay going on. There's a dying out. And I wonder if we could read Amsterdam as a part of that findicical tradition. You know, he's Clive as he's writing his symphony, his last movement is going to have all these grandiose arpeggios and wonderful things that are building, and then it's going to end in quiet, is what he's aiming for. And then he ends with this sort of ultimate quiet of never having the symphony performed. Um, but there is a fascination, you know, it's written in 1998, it's set a little bit earlier. It seems to be set pre the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, but there's a sense of that ending that's happening. And it's kind of funny, like, one of the running jokes of the book is that Clive's writing this symphony for the new millennium, but actually it's like being premiered five years before the millennium is actually over so that people have a chance to warm up to it because the committee, whoever's commissioned it, wants it to be used in like nightly news broadcasts and things like that, like a John Williams-esque sort of thing, like the music's going to be ported into all these different categories and people are going to love it. It's going to become a part of the culture um, as a sort of, celebration of the human spirit heading into this new millennium or something like that. But there's a there's a deflationary aspect to McEwen's book that I find I find pretty in sympathy with a sort of findicical mentality, but I'm wondering what you all think about that. There's also the sense that like we get the somewhat of like the musical manifesto again which is feels like a very middle brow manifesto in some way. And kind of McEwen's like rationale for a bit of his writing style, certainly this book's writing style, which, you know, is not heightened, postmodern, fragmented, multiple-voiced, multiple discursions throughout the narrative. It's too pretty simple, straightforward, and I think well, you know, well-wrought prose, but those two perspectives. And the, the musical manifesto is something of like a neo-traditional, we need harmony, we need melody. The ear has these certain... Uh, needs that the listener wants right both the you know the listener of his prose and of this this music and so that is part of also why I say there's something about the modern in here there's something about like uh, it's supposed to be for the new millennium but it's it's not a piece that's going to symbolize breaking with tradition and going one's own way and being avant-garde and innovative it's going to be like a return to something that's happened in these last 2000 years that was the best and we can't really improve upon that so says this artist i mean we're going to talk a lot about clive's music i'm anticipating soren grabbing his mic violently and jumping in right now and i think that's like you know carl was just saying it's not avant-garde it's traditional in some way at the same time i think during that uh, manifesto part Clive is like well the orthodoxy of music in colleges right now is modernist experimentation it's people rapping on piano legs in an abandoned church somewhere because it's meaningful and they can explain what the meaning is and therefore that's what makes it interesting and he's saying I'm actually doing something that's more interesting because I'm returning to harmony I'm returning to the sort of revision of Mozart that I'm that I'm writing or the revision of Beethoven rather I think like when we're thinking about f- the fin de siècle nature of the book we have to think about the two artists of the book because they see art all around them and I think that's an interesting sort of like life follows art and art follows life thing going on where they there's a lot of rhapsodic writing about music 
um, from Clive's free and direct discourse POV. But then there's also a really strong and powerful appreciation of the language, the newspaper people use when they're trying to describe something, the layout of the page that's going to be the big chacuse that they're going to put out there and how understated and perfect it is. And then there's also an appreciation of Julian Garmini's wife's defense of the photos. Oh, they timed it perfectly. They put a plant in the audience to ask a question. And there's an appreciation of like all the aesthetics of these political games that are being played and then eventually of the the machinations of their mutual deaths and i don't know if there's something decadent about that like i think of decadence i think of obviously decay and also extravagance but also art pervading all of these categories of life and so i think that's something to press on i don't have a thesis about it though yeah that's i think that's what i was trying to say is that it it feels in some ways like a return to a decadent or a beau arts or a art for art's sake moment but then i think um as friedrich is saying it's quite different from the 1890s in the sense that it's um it's trying to push this this thesis about correct form and things that don't feel so enervated at least to these characters Mm. they want to defend them it's a it's like a traditionalist stance a newspaper should be this a good politician has the ability to frame a story this way a good musician has the ability to make a melody this way it doesn't feel quite as like ironic oscar wildey like waiting for the end yeah and to go back to something soren said too it's importantly like all all these things are commodified that the newspaper the artistry of the newspaper is to sell is because they want to sell more newspapers and by the end of it uh when the editorship's been relinquished and the new guy takes over it's all about just selling this sort of crap and then as soren was pointing out about the millennium symphony it's to be premiered on i think on the bbc right and to be used in bbc broadcasts and news broadcasts and they ask we'll make sure that the melody one of the melodies is brassy and can be used in a news segment and they want it to be sold and then embedded into the culture in advance right as something that it's not something that you're going to be inspired by and inspiration is important in this or uh, that's going to come from a place of inspiration it's going to be like come from a place of design for the market so let's approach this question of art from one particular angle that I'm going to try to, it's going to be a little complicated, but I'm going to try to draw together some strings of what you all have been talking about here. I want to approach it by way of the main comparison that Clive makes for himself as a musician, which is the work of Rafe Von Williams, Mm -hmm. which is an incredibly important marker, and it's maybe not as well known to us as Americans. Sorry, if you're British out there, you know Rafe Von Williams. Rafe Von Williams is an early 20th century composer And what he's best known for doing is taking English folk songs and bringing them into the concert hall. He does this in several really well-known pieces of his. He has a Fantasia on green sleeves, which is probably the best-known British folk tune of all. He also has a, a really lovely, I think my favorite piece of his, piece called Five Variants on Dives and Lazarus which is based on another English folk tune. And even his a lot of his songs that aren't actually folk tunes, like the, the wonderful violin piece, The Lark Ascending, sound like they would have been hummed by a, a gardener somewhere out in the English countryside originally, right? They're, they're very much in that aesthetic. And Vaughn Williams is part of this movement in the early 20th century, the late 19th really, and then into the early 20th century, across different countries People like Dvorak are doing it in the Czech Republic. Bartok, although he's a little bit more experimental, is doing it in Hungary. And it's a movement to recapture that sort of folk essence in music and to connect back to the people. And that's Clive says that's what he kind of very explicitly wants to do. He wants to create music that people are actually going to want to listen to. I want to take another strand really quickly, which is another composer who's very closely related to Ray Fon Williams, through blood ties, but um, same period and same sort of er-Englishness about him, which is Sir Edward Elgar. I'm thinking in particular of Elgar's most, well, no, okay, second most famous piece. His most famous piece is the really crappy Pomp and Circumstance, which you hear graduations, but his most famous piece in Britain is um, as as a section of his his piece called um, The Enigma Variations, and it's a movement called Nimrod, and it's this achingly beautiful tune 
and it's sort of been brought into British public life as their national elegy, sort of. It was even um, after 9-11, I remember, um, one of the British orchestras, probably the London Philharmonic, played it in solidarity with American. So so we're mourning for you Americans, right? And here's our way of doing it, because this is our piece of mourning. Is it's, it's a lovely piece. It's really wonderful. But thinking about that versus this symphony that's been designed to be that or to be something like that, where you take those parts and you bring them in and, right, you kind of make it this uber-British thing. It's a really interesting thought in terms of the sort of organic nature of what Vaughn Williams is doing and Elgar is doing, you know, whether we like it or not. I happen to like it. Some people don't. Some people think it's boring and retrograde, whatever. There's still a sort of organic sense that they're doing this out of an act of love and an act, out of an act of stewardship, bringing that forward for you know a sort of coherent, cohesive people group. Whereas I think we have to ask the question, and, and Friedrich, I think you know, you've already sort of brought this up, is to what extent is that now possible in a culture where everything is kind of coming at you prepackaged and designed and and almost sort of you might say like managed by HR almost in, in the case of the newspaper certainly right they're sort of they're on the phone with legal to f- figure out what they can get away with right it's stage managed in that very real sense and, and Clive Symphony no less right at the point at which you're taking advice from the people who are paying you about what should be in your piece of music you're probably you you've moved beyond right uh, a sense of organic creation and so so i want to think about that in terms of what is the middle brow aiming at and accomplishing i'm bringing it back to the middle brow here because von williams certainly and elgar are middle brow composers and and, and to me that's not a, necessarily a negative I, I like both of them a lot but they're not experimental, they're not modernist, they're writing at the same time as somebody like Stravinsky, who at least early Stravinsky leaves them in the dust in terms of experiment. Um, somebody like right, Prokofiev is writing at the same time, again, very much m- much more experimental than anything they produce. But what is it exactly that the middle brow is doing and is able to do in art? I guess it depends how much of the middle brow includes great art or or none if none at all because i you know there are times where like beethoven or mozart can feel very middle brow nowadays right because like everybody knows of them or it's kind of like a it's like tri-brow or something it's low middle and high brow but yeah i mean even even ode to joy right which is the the, the piece that's referenced here it's, it's so well known right right and like people listen to that like on their phone on the toilet or like entails at like you know the most elegant symphony in the biggest of cities right but if i can try and answer in the sense of what the middle brow is doing i think what what makes it a, a, a quite good book is that it's cognizant of the fact that people want great art but their appetite for great art is stuck in the middle brow rut where when you read this newspaper or you want the kind of symphony that are being composed in this book if you if anyone's seen the movie network you know it's like we've moved to a 24-hour news cycle right the appetite for great things is insatiable and Mm -hmm. in some sense McEwen's book's uh, tragedy is that that's what's given us so much middle brownness we we want so much all of the time that you can't really want great things and Mm -hmm. great things every day. Then you get Mm -hmm. the middle brow. And so trying to get out of that rut seems kind of impossible for these two characters. They don't know how to just try to make a great thing. Like maybe, you know, maybe it's a periodical that gets no real serious readership because, you know, a lot of great books, they didn't sell a lot during the author's lifetime, you know? Maybe it's a podcast that only has 50 downloads for every episode. (laughs) That's right. Or, you know, with with music, you know, like similarly, great revolutionary highbrow music, you know, was not the bestseller of the season, you know? Um, And, you know, in all art, you know, How Green Was My Valley or whatever, the this kind of thing always happens. So maybe that's start of an answer to your question, but I, I like the question a lot. I don't have an answer to the question about middle, like, how this is maybe a defense of a middle brow or how it sees the middle brow, but I do think it's a, 
we can start approaching that question if we think about Clive as someone who thinks of himself as not Middlebrow, who is Middlebrow, because he, uh, I don't think there's anything that can be like really generalized from Clive across the arts and stuff because he's sort of idiosyncratic. But I think early in the podcast, Carl was asking about people's moral failings and how there's a lot of emphasis in the book on moral failings as opposed to artistic or political or criminal failings or something like that. And something that he talks about as he's kind of musing, Clive is musing on artistry and creation is the idea of bad behavior of artists. And he's saying, you know, a lot of artists excuse their, their bad behavior with like exaltation of their high calling and the more genius they are, the more they can be excused for their poor behavior. And then his examples are like, you know, maybe every century an exception can be made to that rule. Beethoven, yes, Beethoven, if he behaves poorly, that's fine because he's such a great genius. And then he says, Dylan Thomas, italicized text, most certainly not. <laughs> Ouch, Dylan Thomas, come on. But so much I think of what, so much I think of what Clive's concerned with is the idea of himself as a genius and then how that's tied to the idea of himself as like a not a public figure but like a a person of moral standing he does the right things he's a good guy and then that's how vernon turns the the problem which maybe we should we could talk about that i think that soren's probably gonna want to talk about the way clive is sort of starting to compose as he's in the lake district and the way he's thinking about the music that's coming to him and i want to maybe bring us to that moment so that we can think more about it with specifics Clive is going to the Lake District to get away and start maybe generating some ideas by being in like a quiet place, quiet, beautiful place. And then the problem that he faces is as he's finally coming up with this brilliant melody and he's, he's going to start putting all the pieces of it together. He's interrupted by people's voices and it's like, it's his, it's like his person from Porlock moment, but it's two people from Porlock and they're having a conflict. And we later learned that it was probably this serial rapist who was having a conflict with he was trying to intimidate a woman that is far below his point of view and he's having a problem with like do I go act on this or do I keep composing because I'm going to lose it if I don't and my Kubla Khan fragment will only be a fragment and so he finally decides like I'm going to something like I shouldn't bother them maybe they're a couple or something and he runs off finds a stone table as he emphasizes and sets down and composes and and captures that moment of inspiration. And then that becomes conflict throughout the rest of the novel is Vernon accusing him of uh, having witnessed, a, having witnessed a crime and then not reported it. And so I think maybe around that moment, there's some stuff about inspiration and genius tied to moral failing that maybe we can eventually return to the middle brow. What about either of you? Oh, I like that because to me, to me, Clive's failing strikes me as a pretty middle brow moral failing. Right, he can't accomplish anything great in the realm of like bad behavior. It's just like, I don't want to be bothered, so I'm just gonna hide myself. I mean, he literally just hides himself. He just hides, yeah. Right, that's a middle brow moral failing for sure. Not that it's not significant, because obviously it is. But 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 there's a sense of like you can't even be bothered to. Act. And and so much of his life is so controlled in that way. Mm-hmm. He sort of has everything in its particular place. He wants his like good wine to drink, and mm-hmm. he wants this. He has a relationship with a woman, but she lives in California, so he almost never sees her. Right? He likes that sense of orderness and not the disarray. And so, that's maybe a pretty good metaphor for the middle brow. Like to be great, maybe you have to risk being a little messy, like Beethoven was. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you can't just have perfect order everywhere and have this sort of hermetic seal on your life that keeps everybody out when they're not convenient for you and there's i mean there's obvious irony too that like great art doesn't get you great morality necessarily right yeah um that's obviously a point that he's 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 touching on there i wonder too if that moment is soren you were just saying you need to be maybe part of what McEwen is saying is that like you need to not be so regimented in your life right if you're going to create something truly great and i think part of maybe what's going on in that moment in the lake district is that there's a suggestion that you have to be okay with losing inspiration i mean in an ethical world that the three of us would endorse you have to go do the right thing right you have to go stop this crime from happening but 
the artistic thing going on in that moment is that you also have to be okay with the loss of inspiration. It's not like you're going to have this one moment of inspiration if you're a great artist and if you lose it, you're never going to get it back. If you're a great artist, you're going to write something else. You're going to come back and, and compose something new. That's going to be good. Also like Beethoven revised and revised and revised. That's an important point of comparison, right? He wasn't someone who just wrote a composition and was done with it. It went through huge amounts of revision before it was performed. And I think that the Clive is invested in like not losing that moment of inspiration because I don't know if he has the confidence that he could ever write something great that's not brought to him by like God. And and he doesn't in the end, right? He right. he loses that moment right. of inspiration and he can't get it back. And that seems to be a failing of an you know of, of an aesthetic sort. Like come on, Clive. If you are really a good composer, you'll figure it out. You'll get there again, right? Well, the book is ambivalent about this point, though, because like we're in, as Friedrich has been telling us, you know, the the Lake District of the Romantic poets, who are the you know the ones to remind us in in English uh, literary history of the, how important the muses are and mm-hmm. the the lowercase r sense um, or uppercase our sense of you know being inspired and going out and and doing something daring is what what creativity is and where it comes from and what great art requires is the tortured soul or the inspired soul and i mean there is i don't know there is some sense that like that had real purchase for the the kublai khan fragment right um or the or you know some artists you know feel like they'll they'll lose their their muse if they if they don't write it down at that moment or at that one time like uh like rilke like hearing mm-hmm. the voice or whatever and for the duino elegies so you know there's there's a little of that that like the book i think puts some non-ironic value into like we're supposed to believe that maybe he could have actually written a great symphony yeah. if you know he, but i think what um, part of what else you said that's important is that there's this bind where we want all of this great art all the time, but no program is going to give it to us, right? No highly regimented way of drinking the right wine and just listening to the right YouTube video that tells you to write at 7 a.m. instead of 7 p.m. You know, those kinds of things aren't a perfect program for producing great art. They might help you make more or less art, but the greatness... The idea that greatness can only come through some kind of osmosis that involves a little bit of luck and a lot of talent is a is an idea that the book endorses. I wonder what McEwen's writing uh, regiment is. I, if I had to guess, I'd say I, I would think he would probably be very regimented. Right, I would um, too. <laughs> as as many like great accomplished middlebrow writers are, thinking about someone who I've studied a fair bit, Graham Greene, who mm-hmm. had a very strict regimentation of when he would write and what he would write. And he just pumped out books, right? Kind of like McEwen does, like pumps them out and they're good. And some of them are maybe transcendently good in some ways, but a lot of them are just kind of like, okay, that's pretty good. If you want to make great art, do you attempt to write like 50 books and hope one of them is great? Or do you kind of go the like Ishiguro way and you write like seven and you, you hope each time that that's like, that was your haymaker. That was your attempt to hit it out of the park. You gave it everything you could in that one book. And you hope that one is great. And to me, like that's kind of what makes Ishiguro the better, the better novelist. I'm also interested uh, to turn just for a second back to our musical examples here. There, there are two other people that he compares himself to. One is Schubert, mm. and one is Paul McCartney. Um, <laughs> in the same sentence, he says, "Like Schubert and Paul McCartney, I can rate a great tune," which I think is fascinating. And and, and I'll tackle Schubert first because he's probably a little less known to our listeners. Maybe I shouldn't assume that, but so Schubert is is a romantic composer in Germany in the early 19th century, and he's a, he's very accomplished. He he dies pretty young, and so he doesn't accomplish everything that he might have accomplished. But he is writing in the shadow of Beethoven, and Beethoven is this titanic figure in music and in romance. I mean, he is romanticism, basically early romanticism. It is Beethoven and Schubert, I believe was actually was literally a pallbearer at Beethoven's funeral when he was like a young man. Um, and so he, he, he's in the shadow of Beethoven. He's idolizing him. But the things that he's best known for, Schubert is best known for, are his leader, his songs. He writes these, you know, very, really great songs, the song cycles. But they're these little things, right? There's the, these good tunes. And he never really, I mean, he writes nine symphonies like Beethoven does, but none of them are as 
well-developed or interesting as Beethoven's symphonies. And, and so there's a sense of a sort of falling short, that sense of development being lacking maybe. And in the same way, I think about Paul McCartney, who I love. He is the he is my favorite Beatle. I'll just go ahead and say it. But if you listen to something like the White Album, right, it's it becomes apparent very quickly which songs are written by McCartney and which songs are written by Lennon. Because the McCartney songs are like, doo-doo-doo, it sounds like it was like, it was like barmaids back in the early 20th century. And then the, the, the Lennon stuff is like, <laughs> right? And, and honestly, in the case of the Beatles, here, I'm going to go ahead and, and levy a hot take at you. In the case of the Beatles, it's actually McCartney who's the better artist because he knows his limits and he stays in his lane and he writes good songs. And Lennon is trying to be this sort of tortured artistic genius and he's just falling so far, so far short. And so I told you it was a hot take. But, but there's our Beatles fans out there. I know. I love it. But, but there, is that, there is that divide there, right? In the way that they're perceived. People perceive Paul McCartney Definitely. as the sort of safe, wholesome beetle even though you know he got into the other stuff with the other guys but he's like generally clean and wholesome he had this wonderful long-lived ultimately tragic marriage right mm. um versus lenin had this sort of more fractious marriage to yoko ono but but also aesthetically was much more experimental mm. than mccartney was and so there's that sort of claiming of that you know middle brow retrograde art on clive's part and, and, and i you know again to repeat my hot take in the case of the Beatles, it works because the Beatles are just middle brow music in the end. But they're very good middle brow music yeah. when McCartney's behind the wheel driving his car. I think that that's, you know, that, that he's sort of, Clive is sort of self-consciously claiming those those traditions of sort of smallness and reduction. And, and I'm, I want to think about it, to take it a step further, to think about McEwen for a second. In ways he might be doing that sort of in, in his career as a whole. I think about his book Saturday, which is a really fascinating book that is essentially a rewrite of Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. Mm. It's a book that takes place in the course of one day, one Saturday, like Mrs. Dalloway does. And it's, it's, it follows a surgeon who kind of goes around and meets, he, he kind of experiences life in some similar ways to Mrs. Dalloway. It's pretty different in a lot of ways. It's not Mrs. Dalloway. <laughs> Mrs. Yeah. Dalloway is a great book. Saturday <laughs> is a good book, right? It's a good book. But there's a sort of self-consciousness in the reduction that's going on in what McEwen is doing, right? Mm. He's very self-consciously saying, I can't be Virginia Woolf. Mm. I, I think he would say, I admire Virginia Woolf and I, I maybe love Virginia Woolf. I can't be Virginia mm. Woolf. That's not possible to me. And I think he would go as far to make the claim that it's not just that he can't do it, it's that no one can do that mm. now. We, we live under changed conditions, and it's no longer possible, maybe, to, to create a, a work like Mrs. Dalloway. But what I can do is create Saturday, which is sort of like it and reminds you of it, but is not it, right? And, and I wonder if that's part of what McEwen, in his books, is getting at. A, a self-conscious reduction, a recognition that he can't aspire to the heights of modernism, but maybe he can still write a good tune. I, th I think he's in that lane, right? I think a lot of the book is saying modernism had its day. Let us hail its masters, but you know, no more. Let us not fall off that deep end so many times, hoping that one of us can swim because most, like almost none of us can. You know, it's perilous for the sake of art or something. So, uh, like you're saying, I'm going to be a great craftsman. I buy that, though, you know, I am Carl Bookmarks, you know, I am the walrus. I got to defend the uh, the Lennon side of the Lennon-McCartney battle a little bit. And to take that metaphor back to the book, right, like in the 90s, there are still some there. In fact, the 90s is known for literary experiments and a lot of them work. I think of a, a another famous experimenter who is, I think, kind of in some ways transcends this binary between modern and traditional. And that's the great Polish filmmaker, Kisztof Kieslowski, whose Decalogue is an amazing like filmic experience that everyone should check out. Um, but then he is also, besides that, I think most famous for the, the Three Colors trilogy. And the first one, Blue, is really similar to the plot of this, this book. It's about a man who's a composer composing a great 
uh, symphony, I think, as well, for the new millennium to unite all of Europe. And then he dies, and we follow his wife, who's trying to somehow finish the symphony or get it produced. And she goes through a series of very, like, middle-brow revelations and interactions and cross-class encounters. But it's, it's a really, at once... It's uh, these these three films have been called kind of like anti films in some way. Like it's it's kind of like an anti tragedy where it starts with the tragic thing that was supposed to have been built up to, and then kind of like reverses your emotions to the beginning. And it's a strange watch in a way. It feels kind of like a Robert Altman film, but I think it is both an experiment and a kind of pleasing song, which I think the best of Lennon is those things too. Though I will say my favorite Beatle is George, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all about that the piece, perfect, man. That makes perfect sense to me. Since we're far afield from the book, <laughs> I'll say my favorite's George also. Yeah. Sorry, two votes for George. I appreciate your spirited defense of Paul, though, because yeah. in, in, in true Soren style, Paul is like the uncool, cool one. Oh, yeah. Um, and oh, yeah. Uh, I appreciate your defense of uncool. <laughs> <laughs> Can we take it, um, before we wrap up, I want to talk, dive just a little bit deeper. We t- we've sort of talked about the music at a grandiose level, thinking about theories of art. But I also want to think about, one of the, the, my favorite things about this book, and, and something I really like about it is, and I can't think of another book that does this in quite the same way, maybe you can, but is the way that it describes the process of music composition. Mm which is really fascinating to me. So I want to take us to one place pretty early in the book where it's describing Clive's writing just after he's been talking about his manifesto and things like that. So we have this sort of grand theory of art and then it gets down to business, right? And it says this, this is, this is really interesting to me. Creation apart, the writing of a symphony is physically arduous. Every second of playing time involved writing out note by note the parts of up to two dozen instruments, playing them back, making adjustments to the score, playing again, rewriting, then sitting in silence, listening to the inner ear synthesize and orchestrate the vertical array of scribbles and deletions, amending again until the bar was right, and playing it once more on the piano. By midnight, Clive had extended and written out in full the rising passage and was starting on the great orchestral hiatus that would precede the sprawling change of key. So he stood up from the piano, exhausted, satisfied with the progress he had made, but apprehensive. He had brought this massive engine of sound to a point where the real work on the finale could begin. And it could do so now only with an inspired invention, the final melody. He had reached the core and felt burdened. Mm. And so to return a little bit to what we talked about before, Friedrich, you brought up the point about needing to revise and revise. There is an element of that there, right? Even though he's not playing it up, there is still the sense that this is a lot of work, Mm. right? To compose a piece of music takes so much effort and even just physical effort the physical effort of writing it out this is obviously a little bit before music composition um, software which is now pretty standard I think but the physical sense of writing it out being a tiring activity that's actually something we might pick up on in our patrons episode uh, in a little bit but the sense of the physicality of writing music which isn't something you really think about you think about certainly playing music as a physical experience right you sit down you plunk on the keys whatever there is a set actually. So, it's, it's, listeners, I am a I'm a cellist of many years, and when I don't play for a while, I have to sort of get back into playing shape like you would any other physical activity. But there's the sense here that composition itself is a physical, a tactile thing, and it involves this sort of endless repetition. You have to do it, test it, go back and fix it, do it again, mm-hmm. test it, go back. But then. For Clive, this is like the pre-work of what's actually coming, right? Or maybe it's like the a post-work and a pre-work, right? You get that inspiration and then you work it. It's really fascinating to me. I've never composed anything in my life. Mm. But it strikes me that there is something 
something that rings true to me about that, that it is a process that involves the body somehow, even though we think of it as such a mental thing. It's a really beautiful piece of writing. There are moments like that peppered throughout. I think it's with Clive where McEwen's strengths as a writer come out most fully. And I think maybe part of what's going on with the writing about the composition throughout the novel, the physicality of it, is that there's a reminder about like all this work is going on and all this like effort is being put into making this happen and it can fizzle or it can succeed. But like, I don't know, like where the genius part of it comes in, it doesn't have to, almost doesn't have to do with any of that. Like I, w- I had earlier said, like what made Beethoven a genius partly was his ability to just sit with it and revise and revise and revise. But obviously, as Soren's pointing out, that doesn't necessarily lead to a genius piece of work. But there doesn't mean it's like a value. I don't know if, I don't know how invested McEwen is in this idea, but it doesn't mean that it's a valueless endeavor, right? Um, mm-hmm. To work on something. And maybe part of mm-hmm. part of Clive's problem is that, and I don't even know, it's, it's like McEwen makes satisfyingly complicated characters because mm-hmm. it's not like he's being satirized and he's only thinking about genius because in that moment that you're reading, it does seem that the value is in doing it itself. And so it's not just an easy, like, well, mm-hmm. he, he needs to be, to be a genius. He, he needs to be someone who values the composition act itself because it seems like he does. You changed the whole sense of the passage for me when you said it's something in the body because when you were reading it, I just thought it was like a way of saying, you know, it is the case that for people who really highly appreciate or highly value some form of art, it can be harder for them to create something in it when their expectations on themselves are the highest. So that that's how I take that, like, he's ratcheting himself up to be like, all right, this is the best I can do. I'm not just a person in a room trying to make a little ditty. You know, I'm in the the pantheon of musical greats. I'm trying to get my foot in that door somehow right this second. You know, that's a lot of weight to put on yourself. I don't know what the book is saying about, like, that choice one makes when one composes or when one makes art. Is it ultimately a doomed way of trying to make something? It might be is how I... I read the passage. Listeners, we should, in the interest of full disclosure, let you know that we are all three of us literary critics who also entertain some sort of ambition to <laughs> write creatively. <laughs> so it hits you different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that's a good place for us to stop tonight. Thank you all for discussing this this book with me. Um, I'm glad you you were able to you, you had the patience to get through it and get to the good parts about it since it is I think the, maybe the first book that we've talked about that we've all been kind of ambivalent about but uh, I, I do think it's a book that's worth discussing and, and talking about. Well, I think are we are we um, are we unambiguous that it's a great middlebrow book? <laughs> it's a great Ooh, middle yeah, book. yeah, I think I'm so. I think so. It is funny, you know, um, Carl. You brought up Kislowski. It is interesting that. Um, McEwen's, you know, best-known book, Atonement. Atonement. Um, if this is great middle-brow writing from from McEwen, it then gets turned into maybe a great middle-brow exactly. Oscar yeah. Beatty, oh, Oscar yeah. Beatty movie um, with Joe Wright. Is that his name? Joe Wright directing. That's that's worth noting. But um, okay, so we'll wrap up for tonight. But uh, stay tuned and sign up for the Patreon because very soon you'll be able to access our follow-up um, movie pod. Perhaps not surprisingly, if you've been listening to this pod up to this point, we're going to be discussing maybe the greatest film ever made about music. Not as a film itself, but the best filmic depiction of music. Mm. We'll say that. Which is which is uh, Milos Forman's 1984 film Amadeus about one of the greatest musical geniuses of all time, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We'll think some more about topics like the tie between morality and art, <laughs> the process of composition, and what it means to be a mediocrity. You can join us there if you sign up on our Patreon, patreon.com slash theReadersKaramazov. If not, that's okay, too. We will let you go for now, and until next time, we'll have Cat Keyboard play us out. Oh, 
Rules of Russians. Go, go, go! Yeah.